Hi, it's Kev here. And I'd just like to say a big thank you to everyone who signed up to our Patreon or bought the show a coffee. It's sincerely the only reason you're listening to these words now. Without your support, it simply wouldn't be possible. So, as a thank you, I will now be producing a weekly short show for Patreons called Dark Bites. I will also be doing a longer episode once a month solely for Patreons. This will be on top of receiving the extra episodes in between seasons and also receiving the standard episode two days before everyone else. So again, thank you. If you'd like to sign up to Patreon, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. I, like you, support the shows I listen to through Patreon. And I can safely say through Patreon, you have the opportunity to invest in the things you enjoy. Thank you. Live from Liverpool, The Dark Paranormal, Season 3. Hi everyone, and welcome back to The Dark Paranormal. As we near the end of Season 3, I'd like to thank everybody who's provided feedback on the season so far. And of course, a big thank you to everyone who supported the show, be that through Patreon or by buying the show a coffee. Your support literally keeps this show going. So in this, the penultimate episode of Season 3, we take a look at a couple of the shorter stories which, on their own, wouldn't necessarily constitute a full episode, but together make for the perfect diabolical duo. And it should also stand as a reminder to those of you who may think your story's too short to send in to the dark paranormal. If it's scary enough, we'll always find space, I guarantee it. Also, you will have plenty of time to write those stories down and send them in. Because season four, as we tend to do, will revert back to more famous cases. Cases you may think you're aware of, but we'll put them through the dark paranormal blender and see how they come out the other side. As is usual, the show will take a four-week hiatus between seasons. Therefore, next week's episode, and believe me, I've saved something extra special for the last episode, will be the season finale. There will then be a four-week hiatus before season four begins. However, if you are a Patreon, you will still receive weekly shows every week just for you. So your paranormal service will basically be uninterrupted during that downtime. And as ever, a big thank you to those who've signed up to Patreon or bought the show a coffee over the last seven days. And they are Greg Kirkpatrick, Andy Dawn, Ashes Nicole, Lisa Despain, Sergio Flores... Steinar Isleifsson, Katie Henderson, Jasmine LaRue, Mary Ann Furman, Jacob Gwaltney, Lisa Osler, David Scott, and Barbara Steving. Sincerely, the show only goes on because of you. 
and I hope you enjoyed episode one of the Patreon-only show, Dark Bites. Episode two should be in your feed this very Friday. Thank you, guys. It truly means the world to me. And now, it's very rarely that I'll say this. But if I were you, I would treat these two tales like a warm hug of an evening. A warm, terrifying hug. I would get cosy, lower the lights, and prepare yourself to be scared. Because from entities to exorcisms, these two stories have it all. So, leave your disbelief at the door and join me in the dark paranormal. Hi Kevin, I've been enjoying the Dark Paranormal podcast and thought I would take the time to tell you a little bit about a strange house that I know. It may not add up to the full content of an episode for you, but please feel free to use what I'm about to tell you, however you wish. The story concerns a house in the mountains of northwest Scotland, which I've spent a lot of time in. It's a rural property at the foot of a well-known mountain and on the shore of a well-known sea loch. The house, in its current form, is very old and quite quaint and undoubtedly stands on the site of an even older building. It has been said that it supposedly stands on the site of a Viking longhouse, which I think is not an unlikely possibility. The Norse, having been settlers of the region, and the house laying in a perfectly natural harbour on the shore of the sea loch. The house belongs to a friend of a family friend, and I first came to the house as a child on holiday, and subsequently spent many weeks there over the course of several years. It was an ideal base for the terrific fishing in the locality. From the beginning, I never felt entirely comfortable in the house. I wouldn't say that I was ever frightened, but certainly ill at ease, and I always tried to avoid being within the walls by myself, especially the upstairs floor, which is accessed by a tiny, narrow, winding staircase with a rope fixed to the wall as a banister and a heavy curtain hanging at the bottom of the stairwell acting as a door into the kitchen from where one would access the stairs. The upper floor itself consists of three creaky adjoining attic-converted bedrooms with creaky floorboards, all of which have two single beds on either side of the passageway, giving one the impression of sleeping in a corridor with a door both behind one's head and at one's feet. Even in our teenage years, my sister and I would always share an upstairs bedroom in an unspoken arrangement. It just felt more comfortable being up there with someone else. That said, it's a beautiful house, and we've had many happy times there as a family. And for many years, we stayed in the house without anything odd occurring at all. Other than the uneasy vibes which the house often transmitted. Well, that and the fact the dogs sometimes gazed transfixed at doorways and seemed to track movements around the rooms on occasion. However, over one week in the summer of 2012, things became much more tangible, with three separate events 
that occurred within the house whilst we were in residence. The first event occurred of an evening when only my father and I were in the house. It was a bright, still, warm summer evening and my mother, sister and girlfriend, now my wife, had gone to walk the dogs after dinner. Dad and I were sitting in the living room reading and drinking tea and the others had been gone for about half an hour when we heard the front door, which was a distinctive sounding, stiff, glass-fronted apparatus, opening and then closing again. This was followed by what sounded like just boots being kicked off in the lobby. Assuming one of the girls had come back, Dad shouted through that the kettle was not long boiled and should still be hot. Immediately after, we heard very clearly the noise of a teaspoon tapping a saucer or the edge of a cup three times. After that, nothing. No one came into the room and no one answered when we shouted through to say that we were in the living room. No footsteps ascended the noisy staircase, nor came through the hallway, nor were there any footsteps on the floor above us. No one opened the front door again to go back outside. There wasn't another person in the house, and 20 minutes later, the three girls and the dogs returned from their walk. The second occurrence was without doubt the most remarkable of the three and again took place just after dinner the following evening. We had just finished a meal of trout at the big table in the kitchen and were all pitching in with the cleaning up. This time, my father's friend was also there as she had come to join us for a few days and had arrived earlier that afternoon. The kitchen has a big wall-mounted shelf on one side on which all the crockery in the house is stored The plates are stacked flat in an old-fashioned wire stacking rack on the shelf. We were in the process of clearing the table, and due to the layout of the room, we were all more or less facing the wall to which this shelf is fixed, when two of the plates stacked in the rack flew roughly five feet out from the shelf as if someone had laid a hand upon them and flicked them. They shattered on the tile floor in the middle of the room, We simply stared at one another, totally dumbfounded. There were actually no feelings of fear that I can recall. It was simply a collective, did we actually just see that, moment. I'm sure it would have been much more frightening if it had occurred before a single person. But there were six of us in the room at the time, so we simply stared, in astonished silence in the shattered crockery scattered about the kitchen floor. I must point out that at no time before or after our meal had anyone gone near the shelf in question, as we hadn't used any plates to eat our dinner. We had grilled the trout and simply picked them apart on the grill tray as a group. Also, it's worth reinforcing that the plates on this shelf are stacked on top of one another and not on their edges like in a drying rack where there could be any possibility of them rolling off. These plates undoubtedly moved a force. They did not simply slip off the edge of a shelf. 
I think we all began to feel a little bit more spooked by this as the night drew in, and we faced the reality of having to go to bed in a very dark, already slightly spooky, house where these two events had occurred over the past two days. The night, however, passed peacefully with no further incidents, and in truth, that was the last thing which I personally witnessed in that house. The third instance was witnessed solely by my father on our last night in the house of that week. And although perhaps the most mundane of the three, was the only one at which he unashamedly told us that he was frightened. The caretaker of the house, who was also an old friend, had dropped by during the day to say hello, and explained that there was nobody else due to stay in the house over the next week or so, if we wanted to stay for a few extra days. The rest of us had to get back to work though, but my father decided he would probably stay on for an extra day or two, fishing. That was the plan when we all went to bed that night. It was a warm, still night. Mum and Dad were sleeping in the only downstairs bedroom. Dad said he'd been in a very sound sleep, but suddenly woke with a jolt for no apparent reason. After this, he was struggling to fall back asleep and reckoned he'd lain awake for about 15 minutes or so when he heard one of the dogs in the living room whimper. A few seconds after this, the bedroom door, which was next to the side of the bed, swung very slowly and very deliberately open, with an almost too archetypal long haunted house creak. Dad is not an easily spooked individual, and as an old hunter and angler, has spent a lot of time alone in remote, lonely and dark places than the average person. However, he said that this experience, for no special or apparent reason, was extremely disturbing. He turned on the lamp in the bedroom and looked around the downstairs floor of the house, turning on lights as he went. He said that the dog seemed extraordinarily pleased to see him when he entered the living room where they had been sleeping, which is directly across the hall from the downstairs bedroom. But he found nothing out of order beyond that. He said he decided there and then he wasn't going to stay in the house by himself for those extra few days. In closing, I had an interesting experience just last year regarding this house, but in a detached manner. I met someone at work who, it transpired in conversation, also knew the locale of this house very well, having spent a few years of their life in the area. We were talking about various places in the area, and I was explaining to them the location of the house. You drive past the hotel, over the bridge, and keep going a mile or so down that dirt road and the house is on your left, I said. Is it the first left, up on the plateau, or the one round the corner tucked into the next bay? I said it was the first one up on the Risen Plateau. Oh, that's the haunted house, exclaimed my companion. He told me that it had always been locally regarded as being haunted, and that he'd heard of the owners having had some experiences there over the years, 
though I must confess that none of us had ever heard this before. Perhaps not that surprising, however, if you're trying to attract holiday tenants, that is. I haven't been back to the house since then. Not because of the instances we witnessed. It's just that life has changed somewhat and we're no longer able to do things as an entire family. I fully intend to go back one day, though, as the house was a big part of my young life in many ways. And even with the things we witnessed that week nine years ago, I would still like to go back. I would, however, make sure there was plenty of company, and I certainly wouldn't go near it by myself. Thank you, Ian, for sending your true paranormal experience into the show. It really makes me think about the history of places that we go to and how little we actually know of the history of areas we visit, the stories they may hold and the terrors they may hide. Thank you again, Ian. I'll use this small space in between these two stories to remind you you can send your true paranormal experience to thedarkparanormal at hotmail.com any stories collated during Season 4 will be used in Season 5. Because, as stated at the beginning, Season 4, we will take a look at some of the more well-known paranormal cases that have taken place in history. Once again, that's thedarkparanormal at hotmail.com. Now, let's keep that disbelief suspended just a while longer as we head back to the dark. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker. Engineering your success. This true paranormal experience comes in from Nicole, and it reads, In my early 20s, my husband and I moved into a new apartment in Asbury Park, New Jersey. The guy who was living there was breaking his lease and was looking for someone to sublet from him to avoid the fees. Let's call him Gary. We took a tour and Gary explained he was breaking the lease because him and his girlfriend broke up and he couldn't afford the rent alone. Sounds legitimate enough, right? We got along well with Gary and told him we could move in the next day if he needed us to. We got a phone call later that evening letting us know that we were his favourite couple and that he'd like to sublet the place to us. We moved in two days after the initial viewing. The apartment was lovely and directly across from a big, beautiful Catholic church, which me and my partner didn't really care about since neither of us are religious. The apartment was one of four units in a multi-family colonial home, two units upstairs, two units downstairs. Everything seemed normal at first. There were a few odd happenings here and there, but nothing that couldn't be explained away rationally. When our sublet ended four months later, we renewed the official lease from the property owner for an additional year. And that is when everything changed. 
Our dog was eight at the time, and I'd owned him for six years. I adopted him a few years before my husband and I started dating. His name is Toby. Every single night, between 3 and 3.15am, Toby would wake up, hair raised, growling and barking at a corner in our bedroom. In the six years I'd owned him before this, I'd never heard this dog growl, bare teeth or show any aggression whatsoever. At first, we thought he was reacting to something out the window, but we were on a second floor unit and never saw anything outside. In addition, he was facing a specific corner of the bedroom, not the window. Additionally, it was the same corner every single night at the exact same time. After about a week of this behaviour, I then started getting sleep paralysis. The sleep paralysis experiences were completely new to me, and they were terrifying. They would also happen immediately before my dog would start growling at 3am. I didn't tell my husband about the sleep paralysis. We were both growing uncomfortable with the dog's behaviour since both me and my husband are believers in the paranormal. But we didn't want to overreact. I had also just started chemotherapy treatment so it's possible I was more susceptible to entities since I was in such a weakened state. But I don't know. I don't know much about the theory of it all. That's just what I've been told since. On the night everything came to a peak, I had a bad case of paralysis. I don't know if you would call it paralysis or an out-of-body experience. But either way, I was fully awake and aware of what was happening. During this time, I had stepped out of my body and began walking down the hallway out of my bedroom. My physical body was still in bed, paralysed, and this experience was in kind of a dream-like state. It's very hard to explain whilst keeping the story succinct, so I hope all this makes sense. Anyway, I'm walking down the hallway towards the living room. When I turn the corner into the living room, I'm absolutely frozen in fear as there is a giant black mass standing in the middle of the room with glowing red eyes. The room was in complete darkness, so I can only describe the mass as blacker than black. The figure told me it was the devil. At that exact moment, Toby, who was still in bed with my physical body, absolutely loses his mind. He is freaking out so badly that it actually jolts me from the paralysis. He's snarling, growling, barking and lunging at the same corner that he always does. I'd never seen him so distraught. I start sobbing. My husband wakes up and I tell him what I've just experienced. He admits that he's also been having experiences in the apartment. We stay awake the rest of the night with the lights on and make a game plan for the following day, which was a Saturday. The next day, we start asking the other tenants if they've ever had an odd or paranormal experience. 
to which they all say no. Our neighbours across the hall were the last tenants we spoke to. They, however, seemed very concerned and told us the following. You should try reaching out to the previous tenant, Gary. He once told us that he cursed his girlfriend for breaking up with him. But obviously we, we didn't believe it or take it very seriously. Really, Gary? What an utter dickhead. I sent him a quick text asking if he'd ever experienced something paranormal or maybe used a Ouija board or something in the apartment. He replied and happily admitted that he used a Ouija board all the time. He even asked me what I had experienced, making it seem like we were just having a friendly chat over tea. Again, a clear arsehole. I tell him about the mass I saw the previous night, and this was his exact response. Lol, that's not the devil. That's Norman. In brackets, the name's been changed. He's a demon that I summoned with the Ouija board. Is this guy kidding me? I googled the name he sent, and sure enough, this demon comes up on Google. Not only that, but this specific demon is described as the demon of dreams and sleep paralysis. I asked Gary a bunch of questions, but he went silent. A few hours later, he texts back. Sorry, Nicole. I actually never had any experiences in the apartment and I can't help you. Please never text me again. And then he blocked me. We decided to reach out to the Catholic Church for help. A friend was related to a priest who agreed to come and check out the apartment. The priest was a man of few words, but he listened to our story and had us wait outside whilst he investigated the apartment. We still have no idea what he did or what sort of evidence he needed to get. He refused to tell us. He did call us the next day and say that he'd received approval for a cleansing. But he couldn't make it there until Tuesday, which was a few days away. We reluctantly agreed to wait the several days and lived in utter fear until the day of the cleansing. When Tuesday finally came, the priest showed up with an actual bishop. They were both dressed in the robes and stoles and each carried a book labelled Rites of Exorcism. They asked us to remain present for the procedure. You know the types of things you see in a movie when an exorcism takes place? Well, that's pretty much what we witnessed. As we stood watching the cleansing, a light fixture that was screwed in was ripped from the wall and thrown across the room in front of our own eyes. The incense globes that they had placed around the room to create that smoky, ritualistic smell were knocked over several times, scattering burnt embers all over the wooden floor. As we stood in utter panic, we watched as our paintings were shaking on the walls. Lights were flickering as they walked through the apartment reading their books. I got so physically ill that I vomited. When they finished and read the last words of the exorcism, all four of us witnessed every single light in the apartment physically brighten 
as if they'd been dimmed the entire time we'd lived there. We never had one problem after that night, but I do occasionally worry that whatever it was will come back to haunt me one day, hence calling the demon Norman as opposed to its real name. I've tried to keep this as short as possible and plan to include the story in a book I'm working on that documents my near 100 paranormal experiences. I tell the story and many others on my TikTok and Instagram accounts and my handle is at gingerslunt if you care to let your listeners know. Well, consider that done, Nicole. And I think I can honestly say I've never heard a story as visual as that in terms of exorcism. One thing that really strikes a chord with me from that story, the thing that kind of makes me uneasy, and it is less dramatic than a lot of the things you describe, but the thing that sends a chill down my spine is the light getting brighter, seemingly for the first time since you've moved in. It's that sort of unseen demonic presence and the things that they can do which you may not pay any attention to. Covert and subtle little effects of demonic infestation that you may not even be aware of at the time. That's the thing that sends a chill down my spine. Because it makes me think how many other houses in the world, maybe even people listening now, have something affecting their house or indeed themselves on such a small level that it's imperceptible, but is getting a foothold potentially for a larger attack. I don't want to freak anyone out by saying that, but that's what was left in my mind after reading that story. So once again, a big thank you to both Ian and Nicole for sharing your true paranormal experiences. Next week will be the season finale of season three. And I've been sitting on an amazing story for this particular episode. And I'm looking forward to share it with you. After that time, we take our usual four-week hiatus before the premiere of Season 4. But if you still need your dark paranormal fix, you can sign up to our Patreon, where we will still be producing content during those down weeks. And you can go over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal to do so. In the meantime, I'll see you next week for the Season Finale. And until then, when you're discussing the paranormal, remember... Always leave your disbelief on the coat stand before you take a peek in the dark paranormal. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.